we are talking this morning about the concept of legalism. Now, whenever I hear the word legalism, speaking as a lawyer, my ears tend to perk up. I'm like, oh, legalism. Hmm. That term seems to be tossed around quite a bit in conservative evangelical Christendom. And sometimes it's used without good understanding. Sometimes it's used as a proper caution. And sometimes it's even used as a false accusation. Part of the challenge is that although legalism is definitely a concept that we see in the Bible, we never see the actual word itself, to my knowledge, in Scripture. And so it's never explicitly defined. As a result, different meanings and applications have arisen. Now, speaking generally, a common understanding of the word legalism can be drawn from the dictionary. Merriam-Webster defines legalism as a, quote, a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law. Now, we have to be careful with a common understanding like this because as Christians, we would certainly support and endorse a literal conformity to the law, to the word of God, even if that conformity were to be potentially quite strict. But I think we're starting to get somewhere if we focus on the words excessive conformity because that concept brings in the idea that legalism is something that's out of balance. It's too extreme, perhaps. It goes beyond what is right or appropriate. And we see that out-of-balance legalism manifest itself within the church in various ways. Our Presbyterian brother, Dr. Dan Doriani, the professor of theology and ethics at Covenant Theological Seminary, helpfully writes about four types of legalism, and they're so helpful that we're going to use them here. We have the heresy that following the law gets you into heaven. Dr. Doriani calls it autosoterism, but we'll call it a little bit more simply save-yourself legalism. We have the people who think that after salvation, you need to keep the law in order to retain God's favor or to remain heaven-bound, and we'll call that falling-away legalism. There are the folks who emphasize obedience to the law so much that every other godly attitude tends to fade away, even fruit of the Spirit, which we'll call joyless obedience legalism. And finally, we have the Christians who perhaps try to create new laws and rules that are not found in Scripture which we will call rules of men legalism, and we'll probably spend most of our time there today. So our first type of legalism is save-yourself legalism. It's probably the most classic type of legalism, as well as the most deadly. It's an excessive conformity to the law that is so unbalanced that it's actually damnable and heretical because it tries to turn salvation, which is wholly a work of God's grace, into a works-based effort of man. You don't see this type of legalism terribly often in well-taught churches that have a right understanding of the gospel. But even though it may be rare, it's so important that we get this right because it's the gospel. But anytime you focus on man rather than God, anytime the gospel fails to be regularly and clearly preached, you run the risk of a legalistic moralism taking root. The kind of false theology that says, oh, I'm a good person, so God would never turn me away. We see this legalism in the example of the rich young ruler in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we'll quickly take a look at the passage from Mark, which is Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So basically, we see here how a young man rushed up to Jesus to ask him what the young man needed to do in order to be saved. And Jesus answered that none are good except God alone, and then laid out some of the Ten Commandments. Incredibly, in a combination of arrogance and cluelessness, perhaps, the young man declared that he had kept the Ten Commandments since he was a boy. In other words, he was a good person. So why shouldn't he get into heaven? In his great love and compassion, Jesus showed the man how he was in error by saying that he should sell all his possessions, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. Jesus was saying here that no human works, however good or even radical that they were, could ever result in heaven. And that ultimately, the young man was wrong when he thought he had obeyed the law perfectly since he was a boy. And by the way, it's interesting to note here that the young man was essentially still admitting that he had broken the law as a boy. So even in that case, he would still be condemned. And we know this truth from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Jesus' call to follow him, he was showing the young man that only Jesus himself can save us. It is not our works. That's the truth of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and solely a gift of God. It's only when we acknowledge the truth of Jesus being God and coming down to earth from heaven to live a perfect and sinless life in the form of a man, fully man and fully God. And then he was persecuted by sinful men, tortured and crucified on a cross where he took upon himself the sin of all those past, present, or future who would ever repent and believe in him. And he died and was raised in the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. And so, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we know that from Romans 10, verse 9. That is the truth of the gospel. Salvation is all from God and none from our works. In actuality, our works are utterly worthless for salvation. We see this truth laid out clearly in Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags in some translations. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That is the folly of trying to think that your works can save you. But more than that, we cannot even add works to the gospel because when we do that, we corrupt and make a lie of the gospel itself. That is the theme of the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were trying to tell Christians that they needed to be circumcised and follow Jewish Old Testament law in order to be saved. 
And frankly, we even see similarities today from groups that say the gospel perhaps is not enough or is incomplete. Perhaps some groups like to say that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Some groups need to say say that you need to go on a two-year mission trip or that you need to follow certain regular rituals in your life. But none of that is necessary for salvation. But sadly, we're seeing this concept more and more in America from pulpits that are turning increasingly inward toward man-centered views and attitudes, and in particular, toward views that are increasingly fixated on worldly ideas of so-called social justice. Here's one example from Dottie Lewis, the president of the SEND network of the North American Missions Board, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's church planting organization. Lewis said, quote, The gospel is not good news without spiritual redemption and restoration. Okay, we agree up to that point. But then he goes on, sadly. Quote, But the gospel is also not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration as well. This guy is messing with the gospel here. And based on other things that he said and written, I believe or earnestly that he is saying that unless you become a social justice warrior for, quote, emotional, economic, and social restoration, you don't really have the true gospel. Even a man who I once esteemed years ago, like Paul Tripp, seems to have surrendered to this man-centered teaching, saying this, quote, For all of my passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been accurate and faithful to the best of my ability, the gospel that I have held so dear has been, in reality, a truncated and incomplete gospel. By God's grace, I have become deeply persuaded that we cannot celebrate the gospel of God's grace without being a committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice as well. That's from a letter which has remained on his website without further clarification for over three years, claiming that the true gospel, the biblical gospel, the real gospel that he once preached is not enough that it's truncated or incomplete unless you become a, quote, committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice. What in the world is that? It sure sounds like adding works to the gospel to me. But instead of heeding Paul Tripp, we should heed instead Paul the Apostle, who in refuting this very error said in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, O foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Salvation is all about the gospel and nothing of our flesh or works. And that is the danger of the poison of save-yourself legalism. And the antidote is a true and right understanding of the glorious gospel that actually does save us. Now, we also see a related concept in our second type of legalism. We'll call it falling away legalism. And it's the notion that we need to keep the law in order to retain God's favor or remain heaven-bound. It's a little bit different from what we just talked about, this save-yourself legalism that we just talked about. And it's when a person, you know, that, that's a little bit different from that concept. It's what we're talking about here from falling away legalism is an excessive conformity to the law that fails to understand God's perfect faithfulness and steadfastness and love. 
This type of legalism is more of a continuing lifestyle of works-based self-righteousness, often based on fear and insecurity. And we typically see this attitude within free will Arminian theology, which teaches that a person can lose one's salvation. In contrast, at Grace Community Church and other faithful churches, we teach the truth of eternal security, that all the redeemed, once saved, once truly saved, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. This is so clear from Scripture. There are many verses on the topic. You can find a long list in our doctrinal statement that's available on our website, but we will go through just a few key ones here. There's John 6, 37-39. These are such comforting, wonderful verses. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him, and he will lose nothing. He is far too mighty for that. There's John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. None of the true sheep will be snatched out of Jesus' hand or God's hand. And there's Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once we are in Christ, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God. So hopefully these verses will drive home the biblical truth that if you are genuinely saved, there is nothing you can or cannot do to change that reality. I think Pastor John put it incredibly well when he said, Satan could go to God's throne and lay out a formidable and increasingly longer list of the sins of John MacArthur. And the longer I live, the longer the list gets. Is that not true of all of us? And frankly, the accumulated list would be so horrific and, would, and so would yours. For every one of us, there is a staggering list of indictments. There is a staggering list of disqualifications. We continue to violate God's law. We continue to be, to one degree or another, idolatrous. We continue to be wicked. And believe me, the list is sufficient to condemn us all. How could we ever keep our own salvation? The thought is absolutely ridiculous. And so I say, if I could lose my salvation, I would. And so would you. So that's the truth. We cannot lose our salvation. Once we are his, God will never stop loving us. Now, I do think it's important to make two distinctions. First, we are talking about genuinely saved people here. It's very different for people who are false Christians, who may claim the faith but deny it with their lives. Now, a full discussion of what a false assurance of salvation looks like is outside the scope of this class, But one of the helpful identifying marks of a Christian is whether there is a hatred of sin, especially one's own sin. I believe Romans 6 verses 1 and 2 is edifying on this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So even though all Christians still sin, 
That is true. Genuine Christians have an earnest desire to kill that sin and not to continue in it. Second, for those who are genuinely saved and truly God's children, when we sin, we can and do grieve the Lord. We see that many times in the Old Testament when God grieves over Israel's sin. And we also know from the latter half of Ephesians chapter 4 that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But even as a parent may grieve over a child's waywardness and rebellion, the parent still deeply loves the child. How much more perfect is our awesome God's love for us, despite how often we miss the mark and grieve him? He will never leave us nor forsake us. We know this from Hebrews 13.5. And this is true even or especially when our perfect God decides to discipline us. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11 states, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Being disciplined by God, having a godly response to that discipline and bearing fruit from it is actually strong evidence of our salvation. In that light, Christians should move away from a false mindset of legalistically needing to follow all of the rules or else God will bring divine punishment and wrath because he has absolutely none of that for his precious children who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This truth is perfectly illustrated by 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For here, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Instead, our motive for everything we do, including the observance of God's word, should be based on love. We see this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And just as our sin is indeed capable of grieving our Holy Father, our obedience is also capable of pleasing him. In his helpful paper titled, Pleasing God by Our Obedience and Neglected New Testament Teaching, Dr. Wayne Grudem lists at least 18 ways we can please God. I'm just going to display the summary here. And I will read to you the supporting verses, which you can take down if you want, and you can look at them later. We have Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 14, 18. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 34. Galatians 1, verse 10. Philippians 4, 18. Colossians 1, 10. And uh, we'll send this out to the email list to this list. Colossians 3, 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. 1 Timothy 2.3, 1 Timothy 5.4, Hebrews 11.16, and 12.28, and 13.16, and 13.21. Boy, the book of Hebrews sounds like a good way to learn some of these things. And 1 John 3.22. So that's this notion of falling away legalism. Sadly, a love for God and a desire to please Him aren't always our motives when we seek to obey His word. 
And that leads us to our third type of legalism, which we're calling joyless obedience legalism. Other terms we could use include just-do-it legalism, grit-your-teeth legalism, or white-knuckle legalism. This is an excessive conformity to the law that so emphasizes obedience that other Christian attitudes and fruit of the Spirit, such as joy, are stunted or even absent. It's an almost obsessive focus on law-keeping that doesn't penetrate to the heart. In speaking of the joyless obedience legalist, our pastor's late friend, R.C. Sproul, put it this way, there's no love, joy, life, or passion. It's a rote, mechanical form of law-keeping that we call externalism. The legalist focuses only on obeying bare rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which he gave his law in the first place. For this person, it's all about moralism, behavior modification, social and societal rules. And what's missing is the power of the gospel and an earnest love for Christ. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28 is a good example of this from Scripture. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." The Pharisees appeared righteous to men, but their hearts were hateful and far from God. So obedience alone is not sufficient. It needs to be obedience motivated by a heart of love for God. This is a truth illustrated well by Paul, the former Pharisee among Pharisees, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 15. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." When we're saved, we know the love of Christ, and that transforms us from the inside, from the heart outward. We also see this reality lived out in 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Salvation results in love, love for Christ and love for God's people. Indeed, at salvation, every believer receives the Holy Spirit, and from the Spirit comes fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's so interesting that once again, we see love featured prominently. In fact, it's the first fruit of the Spirit. And the second fruit is joy, which is the exact cure for joyless obedience legalism. 
In fact, if we're serious about obedience to God's word, we need to understand that joyless obedience is an oxymoron. It's impossible to fully obey God's word unless you also have joy. That's because joy itself is a command. Philippians 4.4 proves my point. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Always. Another similar passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These attitudes of rejoicing, prayerfulness, gratitude are to be with us as Christians always. Now, we may not always succeed, of course, but that should be the general inclination of our regenerated hearts, our supernatural default posture, so to speak. And when we obey out of a motive of love for God, joyless obedience legalism loses its power. And the grit your teeth, white knuckle type of effort is made much easier. We know this from 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And when we do this, when we obey out of love for God, we abide in God's love and we receive a full measure of joy. We see this in John 15, verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And yet again, we see obedience, love, and joy linked together here. So much so and so closely that joyless obedience legalism is ultimately nonsensical. So we've covered save yourself legalism, falling away legalism, and joyless obedience legalism. Let's get to our fourth and final and longest point, rules of men legalism. Rules of men legalism is an excessive conformity to a man-made rule or ritual. In discussing this last type of legalism, it's very important to have a good understanding of Christian liberty. And I actually really hate pointing to one of my own messages, but surely because it's so directly relevant to this part of today's message, I actually did a Sundays in July session six years ago on Christian liberty entitled Honoring God in the Gray Areas. And if you Google that exact term, it should come off as the third or fourth hit. But to summarize that sermon here, we're going to define Christian liberty as the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God. Again, Christian liberty is the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God. And whenever we have Christian liberty, which is extremely often, we have to be careful that we're not making up man-made rules or rituals to either restrict or expand our Christian liberty. Even more importantly, we need to be especially careful that we aren't trying to graft our own convictions and preferences in an area of Christian liberty onto other Christians. Because when we do this, we're engaging in the very essence of this type of rules of men legalism. Now, taking a step back, all of us have or ought to have certain personal convictions about how we go about our Christian walk. They might even be wise convictions, or at least wise for us. But the place where we often err is when we start trying to require others to follow our own personal convictions. Let's get into a number of specific examples. During the period when my wife and I were dating, or courting if you prefer, we both shared some personal convictions, such as never being alone together in a private place. 
We didn't want to say, I love you, until after we were engaged. Although, I did blow that one accidentally a couple of times. (laughs) What can I say? My wife is a lovable person. (laughs) And we did indeed save our very first kiss for our wedding ceremony. Those convictions emerged from numerous biblical concepts and even specific verses such as remaining above reproach or making no provision for the flesh or not wanting to defraud the other person and upholding the importance of purity. But even though all of that might be a fine exercise of Heather's and my own personal convictions and consciences, it would be legalistic for us to require those things of the people in, for example, our Bible study because none of those things are explicitly commanded or forbidden in Scripture. Now, when we're meeting with younger couples or when people ask us about convictions that Heather and I might have shared, we might indeed talk about what we did. We might even gently suggest that some of these practices might not be a bad idea for them to consider as well. But we try to take great care in leaving it at that so people can form their own convictions rather than just blindly adopt ours. Let's take another example, divorce. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, and also arguably elsewhere, depending on your manuscripts, gave allowance for divorce in the case of adultery. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, gave allowance for divorce if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. Yet some people still argue, despite those explicit scriptures, that simply because Malachi 2.16 states the truth that God hates divorce, and he does... They take that and then extend it to say that we should therefore never enter into a divorce even in cases of, say, adultery or an unbelieving spouse abandoning the marriage. Now, of course, it is up to any given Christian whether or not they want to proceed with a biblical divorce in these situations. And it could be a beautiful picture of forgiveness not to proceed with a divorce even if allowed by the Bible. But trying to forbid a biblical divorce where the scriptures clearly allow it would be legalistic. It would be a rule of men, and in some ways, it's trying to be holier than God's word because Jesus explicitly allows for it. And and although I personally struggled to find many situations where I would actually counsel someone to get a divorce, neither would I attempt to stand in the way of a biblical divorce. The Lord appears to have allowed this provision for our own weakness and in light of the reality of the intense intimacy of marriage. And one could perhaps also make the argument that a marriage that persists after an adultery but is utterly miserable might not be the best representation of Christ and his church. Another hot-button issue, modesty. There's quite a bit going around about modesty in the, in the Christian church, and even in some ways a backlash against the concept of modesty as it has been expressed in many conservative evangelical circles. When we talk about biblical modesty, we're mostly taking the concept from two passages, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And then another very common passage that's very applicable is 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. These are great, powerful passages. They're very relevant. But candidly, there aren't a lot of details or specifics in them. 
And we certainly don't see anything about what materials to use or colors to wear, much less proper clothing length, as an example. As a result, much of this is going to be a heart matter for an individual woman, possibly in conjunction with her husband if she's married or her parents if she's not, assuming that any of these other folks have convictions of their own on this topic that go beyond mere preference. And on that note, I think it's important to address the area of personal conviction in an area like modesty. I suppose it's within the realm of possibility that if you see an entire family where the women are dressed in, let's say, bonnets and cape dresses, one or more of them might be operating under certain legal rule, legalistic rules of men rather than explicit biblical commands. That's possible. That's within the realm of possibility. But I think it's just as legalistic, if not more so, if you automatically make such an uncharitably sinful assumption. Because you're now adding rules of men to how we're supposed to be judging others. Basically, the new rule of men here is that if women dress in an old-fashioned way, they must therefore be legalistic. And that is hardly fair. That is completely unfair. Instead, we're actually commanded not to judge the hearts of these precious women in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And we're also commanded in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.16, the first half, that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So rather than assuming that these old-fashioned women are legalistic, it could just be that they have some very strong personal convictions on the issue of modesty. Praise the Lord for that. And even if you might not personally share those same convictions, if the motive of these women is truly love for God and a desire for personal holiness, then their actions are honoring to the Lord. Oftentimes, these accusations of rules of men legalism can amount to a backlash from people who, might, who either disagree with or misunderstand, or perhaps even are secretly convicted by another person's desire for holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.12 states, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's a truth, and that's a promise. But wouldn't it be great if that persecution were only to come from the world and not other Christians? We see that with some of our beloved Canadian pastor brethren, who are convinced from God's word that they need to hold worship services even though the Canadian government is shutting them down or even jailing them. And sadly, even in the Christian circles, instead of trying to encourage these men, we see so many Christian pundits and evangelical bigwigs taking shots and criticizing. Oh, that's not real persecution. So when the police drag you away and your kids are crying and you're prevented from leading your family in your church... I'm sorry, but that is indeed one essence of persecution, even if there's no waterboarding or torture or execution yet. Now, sometimes we might not be legalistically trying to insist that someone else follow our convictions, but perhaps we have other motives for wanting to nudge that person in a certain direction. Maybe we have an earnest desire for someone that we love to prioritize what we consider to be holiness and holy living. Maybe we want someone to take a wise course of action rather than a foolish one. Maybe we have some basic household rules, which we're not even remotely claiming are commanded in Scripture, like wash your own dishes or no pets in the house. But perhaps they're still received that way 
erroneously, from the people living under our roof. These may be tougher cases to consider, but we still need to remember that whenever we push too hard to the point where we're adding to or taking away from God's word and are instead using man-made rules or rituals, we are the ones who are actually engaging in sin. We know this from Deuteronomy 12.32 when God is speaking of his law. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And when we start trying to bind other people's consciences with these man-made rules or rituals in a matter of Christian liberty, we are sadly like the Pharisees in Matthew 23.4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Instead of that judgmental attitude, we should strive for an attitude of charity and patience and forbearance with our brothers and sisters in the area of Christian liberty. Now, to be very clear here, I'm not talking about sin, which we indeed should confront. Again, to reiterate, I'm talking about areas of Christian liberty where something is neither commanded nor forbidden. In these situations, we shouldn't be sitting back with folded arms, shaking our heads and watching for the disaster, which we just know is coming with an I told you so ready in our lips. Romans 14, 1 through 4 speaks to this attitude. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, we should not be looking down on other Christians. But in many ways, unfortunately, rules of men legalism is about exactly that sort of arrogant condescension. We often see it come out in the Christian liberty concept of the stronger and weaker brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. A stronger brother is someone whose conscience allows for a greater degree of Christian liberty, while a weaker brother is someone whose conscience allows for only a lesser degree. So how do we find out who's stronger and who's weaker? For example, if a woman wears a head covering, is that the stronger or weaker sister? Or what about a guy who drinks alcohol in moderation? Is that the stronger or the weaker brother? You know, in many ways, I believe Scripture would almost answer, who cares? Let's take another look at Romans 14.3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Either way, whether you're stronger or weaker or your brother is stronger or weaker, neither one of you is supposed to look down on the other person. This truth is borne out by the Greek words for stronger and weaker here. It's dunamis and astheneo which means ability and inability, capacity and incapacity. And it's the same type of word, by the way, used in 1 Peter 3.7, when women are referred to as the physically weaker vessel. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that women are less valuable or morally inferior or inherently worse. It just talks, in that case, we're talking about ability and inability here. There's a lot of contempt that comes along with judgmental views of oneself as strong or wise and others as weak or foolish. 
I know this because I've done it myself from time to time, to my shame. But do you want to turn your view upside down on this topic? There are many godly men, many pastors even, whose consciences would be bothered by meeting with a woman alone privately, not his wife. Now, there's no scripture explicitly forbidding that, right? I mean, you could perhaps make an indirect argument about avoiding every form of evil, but that would be a personal application of that verse, and it's not a flat prohibition against that practice. So is that pastor who has that conviction in their conscience being the weaker brother here? Or is he perhaps being the wiser brother here? Or let's take another example. What about a guy who smokes and spends freely on his own personal comforts? That has to be the weaker brother, right? Well, let's get into it. A young Christian man was asked what he should do about a box of cigars he had been given. The older man solved his problem. Give them to me, he said, and I will smoke them to the glory of God. (laughs) You see, smoking in and of itself is not a sin listed in the word of God. There's no verse that forbids it. Now, some people might consider it disgusting or perhaps even foolish, but it isn't sin unless you're addicted. On another occasion, that same older man was criticized for traveling to meetings first class. His antagonist said, what are you doing up here? I am riding back there in third class, taking care of the Lord's money. The older man replied, and I am up here in first class, taking care of the Lord's servant. It's tough to argue, right? Again, traveling first class is not a sin. Even Jesus and the disciples, by the way, took some time off and essentially went on vacation in Mark 6.31. So who is this older gentleman, this, this weaker brother we're talking about? Some of you might already know. We're talking about Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, as he was nicknamed. So what's our reaction when we see a Christian who seems different in some way? Maybe he smokes or has piercings and tattoos or dresses a little bit differently. Be honest. Do you look down on him or her? If you do, then you might need to repent because trying to graft your own convictions onto another person in a manner of Christian liberty is sinful. Now, there is a flip side to this type of contempt, and this idea has sometimes been called the tyranny of the weaker brother. The foundation of this issue is based on Romans 14.23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if an action violates a Christian's especially sensitive conscience in an area, that action would be sin for that Christian, even if many other Christians might consider that to be a matter of Christian liberty. In that sense, the action is a subjective sin for the Christian with a sensitive conscience. And then... You get the tyranny of the weaker brother when the believer with a sensitive conscience essentially uses it as a weapon against other believers. Oh, you're not wearing a long skirt. You're not wearing a head covering. My eyes, my poor eyes. (laughs) Or perhaps more relevantly in the season we're in right now. Wait, what do you mean you're not vaccinated? (laughs) How can you not be? Well, I'm absolutely positive that the Bible says nothing at all about vaccines, (laughs) which means they're neither forbidden nor commanded. So at that point, we're in the realm of Christian liberty and wisdom. 
Now, I personally happen to believe that many vaccines are generally safe and generally effective, and so they can often be a very good idea. But you know what I'm not going to do? Is that I'm not going to turn something that's not in Scripture into some kind of litmus test as to whether you're being a good Christian or not. Romans 14.5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If someone isn't fully convinced in his own mind as to vaccines, I'm not going to browbeat him into my own position. Now, some would argue that if you don't get vaccinated, you don't love your neighbor. But if there's one thing the church shutdowns revealed to me, it's that although I agree that love your neighbor is a great commandment and a fair encouragement, everyone needs to be very careful not to pervert love your neighbor into do what I say or else I will falsely accuse you of not loving your neighbor because that is pharisaical legalism and emotional blackmail. And for all of the people encouraging others to love their neighbors, I hope they will also remember that love the Lord your God is an even greater commandment than love your neighbor. Certainly, we need to remember that when it comes to, say, gathering for corporate worship. And on a practical applicational level, you might also want to consider how much power that you want the government to have whether it's to shut down churches or to mandate vaccinations. So when we consider this idea of the tyranny of the weaker brother, and remember again that it isn't always obvious or relevant who the weaker brother might be in certain cases, when this attitude does come out, it often takes the form of a demand or an airing of grievances or a taking of offense. In contrast, Truly humble people will often have a totally different attitude because humility asks. It doesn't demand. Consider how different a humble request from a former gambler gambler or alcoholic or charismatic might be compared to a self-righteous demand. Hi, you you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and when I'm around it, I just tend to overindulge. So I just wanted to ask, are you planning to have alcohol at your dinner? I promise I will totally understand either way. It's your home, and I'm definitely not asking you to change anything just for me. I just wanted to be forewarned so that I can make an informed decision. Now, I would personally be incredibly sympathetic to a question like that, as opposed to say, I cannot believe you are serving wine at this event. I am horrified. I'm offended. I'm appalled. How could you do such a thing? It's a very different attitude, don't you see? Maybe it's a guy who, uh, let's say he stumbles into lust at even the sight of an exposed ankle. Now, is it more appropriate for that guy to try to insist that every woman in the congregation should wear a burqa? Or is it perhaps better for the guy to look down or away, or maybe even in an extreme case be led around by a brother, if that's absolutely necessary, until he can grow spiritually to some minimum baseline of self-control. Look, we need to remember that subjective sin, the sin that comes from a Christian's especially sensitive conscience, is only sin for that person. For everyone else, 1 Corinthians 10, 29, and 30 is very helpful on this issue. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
Now, we shouldn't rub it in the face of the Christian with a sensitive conscience. And we must not put a deliberate stumbling block in that Christian's path. But neither should we allow our own liberty to be determined by someone else's conscience. That is the very nature of rules of man legalism. Remember, if people are trying to impose their consciences on you like this, they are actually the ones who are often sinning because they're usually either adding to or taking away from the word of God, as it says and warns against in Deuteronomy 12.32. Or perhaps they're trying to tie up heavy, extra-biblical burdens on your back, as it warns in Matthew 23.4. And if a brother or sister sins in this way against you, you may want to show that person his or her fault in private. And if you decide to go, make sure you fully understand the issue, because there can be great confusion sometimes on areas of Christian liberty and legalism. That's why Paul has devoted entire chapters to this subject in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Timothy 4. Pretty much the entire book of Galatians has it throughout. Maybe you want to ask for a second opinion from a godly mentor. And if you do decide to confront that person, always, always, always make sure you have these specific verses that you believe are being violated. So now that we've talked about this issue of rules of and legalism, let's talk about some practical ways to avoid it. How can we exercise our Christian liberty without becoming legalistic? First, we ought to educate ourselves on what the Word of God actually says and doesn't say. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 states, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Some people have weak consciences because they don't know the Word of God very well. Examples of this might be newer believers or believers who are stuck in environments that are heavy on traditional tradition and ritual and light on biblical knowledge and biblical teaching. I mean, even just knowing a passage such as Colossians 2, 20 through 23 can be incredibly helpful in breaking free of legalism. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence." This passage tells us to beware the commandments and teachings of men and that certain things might have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion but are actually of no value against the flesh. And to try to help avoid these things, you should remember that it's always appropriate to ask for chapter and verse in support of any particular proposition. We want to be people of the book, amen? We want to know. Look, let's, let's have a discussion about this. Another thing you might be able to do is potentially relax about what other people might be doing, especially if it isn't sin. Romans 14, 10 through 13, the first half, is helpful on this concept. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. 
It's the contempt, the holier-than-thou attitude, the looking down on others that can often cause rules of men legalism to be so dangerous to the unity of the body of Christ. It's this busybody mentality, the you-need-to-do-what-I-do attitude that results in the worst problems. Because you know what? That family with the bonnets and cape dresses that I mentioned earlier, they're probably not hurting you in any way. And it's only when you start looking down on them or they start trying to get you to dress the same way that they, you do, that they do, that's when damage can start. That's when division can arise. And again, I want to reemphasize because it's an important distinction. This is for matters of Christian liberty and legalism. It's not for matters of sin, which may indeed need to be confronted. That's why it's so important for you to know your Bible and understand the distinctions between sin and foolishness, between foolishness and liberty, between liberty and wisdom, and between wisdom and what's commanded. And it's especially important on the topic of legalism to know the difference between a universal truth and a personal conviction, between commands versus advice versus a confrontation of sin. And by the way, please don't take it personally if someone else doesn't take your advice. At the end of the day, it's his or her life and accountability before the Lord. As one example, in the realm of dating, I might think that someone is a great and godly guy, or that's a great and godly gal. Or in contrast, I might think that a particular dating relationship is a major train wreck. But at the end of the day, I don't think my opinion is really worth all that much in these matters. Not necessarily. Because ultimately, it's that guy and that gal who will have to decide whether or not to live with each other in marriage. Now, if there are red flags and you've given the appropriate cautions, you've done your duty. You've been the Ezekiel 33 watchman on the wall who called out a warning. And the rest is the couple's responsibility. And it may end up badly, although we earnestly implore the Lord that it wouldn't. And regardless, God is sovereign, and it will all work out for the good of those who believe. And again, we're... Just to reiterate a third time, we're not talking about matters of sin, which may need to be confronted. If you, if you know a dating couple and they're in sexual immorality, confront them, I implore you, because that's what would be commanded in the Bible. But in other areas, matters of liberty, they're the ones that are going to have to live with one another. Now, I know much of this can be complicated and tricky, but the answer isn't to lock yourself in your room and do nothing out of fear of causing someone else to stumble or offending someone. Instead, my desire is for you to think about these things, to use discernment. My desire is for you to have a biblical worldview and to see everything through God-centered lenses. Read about this stuff. Talk about it with your friends and family. Have conversations about Christian liberty, about the dangers of legalism, about all of these things. Because that's really what the Christian life is all about, living in community, living in discipleship, living in fellowship, helping to make disciples both inside the church and outside of it as we go evangelize. And as we ponder the problem of legalism, I appreciate the words of our friend Stephen Nichols, who has been with us at the Shepherds Conference in the past. He's the president of Reformation Bible College and the chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries. He said, the opposite of legalism is not license. It is liberty. We need to remember that we have freedom in Christ and that we are not enslaved by the rules of men. 
And as we ponder the meaning of liberty, I think it would be helpful if we turn to Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. This is right before we launch into the epic chapter of Romans 14 on the topic of Christian liberty that I've cited very often today. But the end of Romans chapter 13 sums it up this way. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The solution to legalism is liberty. And liberty can be simplified to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Don't look down on him. Don't cause him to stumble. Don't try to graft your own conscience and convictions on him. And when you can do that, you will avoid the trap of legalism in all of its forms, even as you also strive to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful to you for your word. We're so thankful to you that you give such clear guidance in so many areas about what is sin, about what is commanded, and also even conceptually on that very broad area of what is Christian liberty. I pray that we would be mindful and vigilant as to not falling into one of these types of legalism, Lord. Because that legalism is not helpful. And in its worst cases, that legalism can lead to damnable error. But I pray, Lord, that we would be people of the book, that we would be excelling still more in love, that we would be working these things out in discussions, in fellowship, in community, because I love this community, Lord. I'm thankful for Cornerstone, and I just pray that we would, uh, as we go forth and proclaim your gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth, Lord, that we would also be mindful to practicing the one another's in our local body. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.